I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Today's guest is John Mitchell, also known as the Purple Coach. As Dave mentioned, I'll be having many friends on this podcast, and John is no exception. I've known John for over 30 years. He went to college with my husband, Stephen. I think he was there shortly after I met Stephen. Of course, he was at our wedding, and he actually stood up in our wedding. I was there when he met his wife, Sarah. We've traveled together, biked together, watched football games, some good, some not so good. We've been to bowl games, and we just have a great time together. John is an executive coach. He has offered me such great advice through the years, and he's been a great cheerleader when I started Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, and most recently on my book. Today, we're going to talk to John about his career path to executive coach. What is executive coach? Who benefit from an executive coach? What are the clients that he works with? What are some tips he can offer you to help you better in your profession? I'm going to talk to him how he maximizes his return on life and much, much more. So, John, um, why don't we just start at the beginning? Because I think you have a little unusual path to being an executive coach. So why don't you share with our listeners today? Sure. And I'll try to do the slightly abridged version, Sherry, because it could go quite a while. And hopefully this will show some people that being nonlinear can actually be a good thing sometimes. So I came out of college with the determination that I was going to be a lawyer. I thought I was going to be the next Perry Mason. I also knew that I didn't want to go to law school right away. So I went and worked for a social service agency that my job was to create relationships with what in those days they called at-risk youth, meaning teenagers that the school systems thought were at risk. What I realized in my two years doing that job is that all teenagers are at risk. The role was a little bit strange, but it was a great role because it was the beginning of me learning about some coaching before I ever knew that there was such a thing as a coach. Because my whole role was to build relationships, build trust, help people see things through a different perspective, help them get to a resource like a school social worker or community mental health center that could be useful to them. So I did that for two years. Then I went ahead and fulfilled my desire to go to law school. I went to Northwestern. I did meet you, Sherry, at a, I think it was a U of C scavenger hunt. Um, As you and Steven (laughs) were waiting in line for a bathroom at somebody's (laughs) place. So many years ago, but that's when I was in law school, if I remember the history correctly. And I graduated from Northwestern. Wait, didn't you meet someone else pretty special at law school? Um, I did meet someone very special at law school. The very first day when the dean said, look to your left, look to your right one of the three of you will end up being married to somebody in your class. And I thought, boy, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. Um, And it turned out I married five years after that day, my wife, Sarah Hayes. So, yep, it's um, a a pivotal time for all of us, it sounds like. Yeah. So I practiced law at a firm called Rudnick and Wolf in Chicago. Um, I was a commercial litigator. 
loved many aspects of that work and didn't love many aspects of that work. And ultimately decided I was going to leave and pursue something at a very senior leadership level. And this was before the dot-com boom. So it wasn't really a chance for a 30-year-old to go out and be the CEO of a company like you see so you know much in the past 20 years. So I started looking for large not-for-profits um, that I could become the executive director of and eventually landed the role as executive director at Habitat for Humanity here in Chicago. And so I did that during an incredibly challenging period of time, both for myself and for Habitat for Humanity. And I learned some of the most valuable lessons that I've ever learned during that job. And one of those lessons was really about when you're leading a large organization and you have lots of people, you'll never have enough time to be everywhere and do everything the way you think it needs to be done. And the only way to survive is to really focus on your senior leadership team and develop them to be the very best that they can be and count on them to do that for their direct reports and so on and so on. And that was an incredibly powerful lesson that helped me get even more excited about the idea of coaching. So while I was at Habitat, my board had encouraged me to go get an executive MBA and I went to Kellogg to do that. Sherry started telling me about her experience in her training for a Wall Street um, financial advisory firm. And she was talking about these crazy people called coaches. And she kept telling me like, oh, this is what you do. You should look into this. This is like the big thing now. And, you know, you can make a lot of money doing it. And it's what you naturally do. And you did this in college. You should go look into this. And while I was at Kellogg, I started using all of their resources to do a lot of research and discovered that lo and behold, Sherry was right. It made a lot of sense for me to look into coaching. I signed up for a um, virtual coach training program while I was still in Kellogg, started that program, graduated from Kellogg, and immediately started a coaching business. And it has grown over those years. It's been just over 20 years now that I've had that business. It has morphed and gone in different directions along the way. And it has been a great joy for me. It is so much fun. I am very energized when I am at work because I'm working with very interesting people who have very interesting challenges and are very committed to their own success, which makes this way more fun than some of the consulting that I occasionally do because no one wants to work with a coach who doesn't want to be more successful in their own lives. So you're always working with people who are very positively oriented. And that's kind of how I'm wired. So it makes it a lot more fun for me. So anyway, that's my short version of my long story about how I got to be an executive coach. And since I did my initial coach training, I've done multiple other coach trainings along the way. And what's been fascinating to me is when I came into the industry, there weren't any U.S. universities really that had coach training programs. There was a couple Canadian ones, but they're all basically private schools that were teaching coaching. And now NYU, Columbia, University of Texas, Georgetown, all have coaching programs. And the industry is getting bigger and bigger and more and more sophisticated. And I think that's an exciting time for people who are thinking about becoming a client of an executive coach is that the opportunities to find more coaches of more types of more diverse training is, is as great as it's ever been. And I mean, it goes full circle. You know, you can't do this alone. And if I remember, coaching was not a common theme. This was not something that people almost were, oh, it, it looked like a disability if you needed an executive coach instead of something that could really help people. So can you kind of define exactly what an executive coach does? Sure. And what I would say to people that are really concerned about a definition is the International Coach Federation website has a lot of definitions and a code of ethics that I adhere to. I'm a member of the International Coach Federation, and that's the best place to go. But the shorthand I will say to you is that an executive coach is someone who is trained as a coach. And I want to say that very clearly, 
people need to be trained. This is a skill set that many people have um, without training. And you won't have a complete skill set, though. So a lot of people are good at asking questions. A lot of people are really good at getting people to open up. And then a lot of people are good at just giving them advice. And that's not really what a coach is all about, although there could be some advice given at times. And so what a coach is, is somebody who has been trained to learn coaching techniques, things like asking powerful questions to evoke something in the client, right? To help a client find their answer. Instead of when I'm a consultant, I give you answers. But when I'm a coach, I pull answers out of you. I help you find your own answers. So there's a whole training that goes into that. And people who work as executive coaches like I do tend to focus on more senior leaders or people who are um, in, the, in the executive offices. Um, or in my case, I work a lot in professional services. And so they're not always set up as a corporation, even though many of them are, they still function more like partnerships. So I end up working with a lot of senior leaders who are trying to figure out how they can be the most effective leader they can be so that they can accomplish whatever it is that they're, they're trying to do. And so a true coach is really more like a guide. They're someone helping you find your answers. They're not telling you what to do. And they're not consultants or therapists or mentors, even though all of those things are useful. And I make referrals all the time for consultants and, and therapists. And mentors are great, both inside and outside of your industry. But a coach is really somebody who's that guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. Their whole job is to help you figure out how to be as effective as you possibly can be, given your talents, given your strengths, and given, most importantly, your interests. Yeah, so you kind of keep people accountable. Do you usually meet weekly with your people that you coach? At the level that I'm working with right now, it's almost always twice a month, so every two weeks, basically. Every now and then, we'll work with somebody three times a month, but for a very short period of time. And the reason for that is, is really twofold. Number one, even my emerging leaders are incredibly busy. And so they need time to have the coaching conversation. One of the most important things about coaching is the magic does not happen in the coaching conversation. The magic happens after the conversation. And so I wanna make sure people have enough time to process what we discussed and then go out and experiment. And I, I lead them with experiments after every call, typically like an assignment to do. And it's something that's relevant to their work. It's not an academic exercise. And it's something that's relevant to what they're trying to accomplish. And that helps people literally figure out how to get to where they wanna go faster and easier. Like all of my clients were successful before they met me. They'll all be successful after I'm out of their lives. My role is to help them achieve whatever they define as success faster than they would on their own and with more ease than they might on their own. But that's really it. Long answer to your question, Sherry, but for me, it's typically twice a month so that people have a chance to work on what they've been thinking about in our coaching sessions before the next session. We will process that and move on to the next set of experiments. Do you find that your clients hire you directly and some of them don't even let their employers know they hire you or are you hired through the employer or how, how does that work? So it's both. We try to work through organizations if possible. And the reason for that is if the company is paying for the coaching and my team is coaching more than three or four people inside an organization, we'll quickly start to pick up patterns and trends in that organization. Because we're coaching enough people, if lots of people are expressing a trend, we can share that with the company anonymously. So no client ever has to worry about, you know, their confidentiality being violated because we're getting it from enough people who can share it. And if the company is paying for the coaching, they'll listen to us when we talk about the trends. If individuals are paying 
us for the coaching, even if they're like, say, 10 people from the same company are paying my coaching team privately. If I go to the company and say, you know, I picked up with my team that your, your company has an issue getting women opportunities to be part of pitch teams. And it seems like it's holding um, back career opportunities. They won't listen to me when I bring them that news. If they're paying the team, they'll listen to us. Mm -hmm. So we try to always get organizations to pay. However, in many cases, they won't. Or in some cases, people don't want the organization to know they're working with a coach. And in some cases, like in financial services, back in the days that you were talking about, Sherry, and if you recall, I used to do a lot of work in the financial services industry. One of the things that I found is some people thought the coach was their secret weapon. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to privately pay for it because they didn't want their colleagues to know that they were working with a coach. Yeah. And I I just know that you've talk with me and you've helped me figure out my perfect day, which I thank you because I have it uh, starting the business. I'm able to work out in the morning. I work with clients. I get to do the podcast and the book. And I think that's the beauty of coaches is helping you have your perfect day because you'll read in my book, uh, Maximize Your Return on Life. Our resources are limited in our time and you should be spending time on what you love doing and especially with your work. So I know you did a lot of financial services back when you first started. Is there niches now that you work with? And what is your typical client? Sure, there are niches now. We, we really have specialized after saying I would never work with lawyers again in my life after leaving the law. I actually work with a lot of lawyers now. It is the largest part of the business. So I try to focus on professional service providers. So lawyers, accountants, financial services um, folks, and you know, advertising, I've done PR companies, all sorts of different you know, professional services like that. The focus though is really on law and lawyers, both in-house legal department lawyers and lawyers in private law firms. And I would say that my typical client is either in a formal leadership role in that firm or as a rainmaker which means they may not have a title, but they drive so much business, they have a tremendous amount of influence in the firm. And then the third group in the law space is really emerging leaders, people that the firm thinks have a lot of potential, or they think they have a lot of potential. And some firms have programs in place where somebody, as they're moving up toward being partner, can actually retain a coach's services, and the firm pays for it, or at least part of it. Other times, people just on their own decide, I know what I want out of my career. I want to go to this place, and I want to get there my way. And so they'll hire a coach to help them do that. So I have some of those folks as clients as well. We have a second emerging niche that is fascinating to me because it is in healthcare, specifically academic healthcare. And as I'm aging, I am participating a little bit more in our healthcare (laughs) system, more than I want to at least. And I'm also realizing that healthcare has its challenges and the academy has its challenges. And if you put the two together, it's not one plus one equals two types of challenges. It's one plus one equals three. It's like, oh my goodness. And we're doing some really interesting work right now in healthcare with a really large um, healthcare system, academic healthcare system out in the Pacific Northwest. And I have a suspicion that even though we're not marketing to healthcare right now, we're getting more clients in that space. And I think it will become a large part of our business in the next couple of years. Okay, John, not to put you on the spot, but can you... Tell us some success stories you've had through your career. Obviously, no names, but some just so our listeners can get an idea of what someone could benefit from coaching. Sure. So one of the things that you talk a lot about in your book, Sherry, is this importance of core values. And I think that a great example of that is I worked with a um, client a number of years ago who was a real estate developer. And he and his business partner had an opportunity to purchase literally hundreds of gas stations spread across the United States. 
And this was going to be a major wealth creation event in this person's life. They were going to liquidate most of them, convert the property to other uses, sell off gasoline parts and things like that. He was going to make a fortune. And it was going to take about two years to get the deal closed. And it was going to take two to three years to liquidate. So talking about basically four to five years on the road. And one of the things this person had told me in our very first session together was he had these very important values. One was his faith community. One was his family. And one was just being a good civic contributor to the suburban community that he lived in. And he told me those were the three most important things in his life in that order, his faith community, his family, and the civic community involvement. So as he's telling me about this really phenomenal project, where again, he was going to make more money than he'd ever imagined, I started asking him some questions. The first of which was, how many days do you think you'll have to be on the road per week? Well, for the first two to three years, as we're getting the deal done, it's going to probably be four to five. Okay. How many days when you're liquidating? Well, we'll have some more people on. It'll be a little less work, maybe three to four. Talk to me about how that's going to impact your top three core values. Silence. He starts processing it. He hemmed and hawed. He gave me kind of this BS answer. And I said, no worries. And we kept going. We came back to it in the next coaching session. I said, have you thought more about my questions? And he, he said, I have. And I said, well, what's your conclusion? I want to talk to you about this a little more. Anyway, long story short, we spent the next month having conversations about this. In the end, he walked away from the deal. Business partner was livid, but he walked away from the deal because he realized to pursue that dream was going to be violative of his core values. And he didn't want to give them up for five years. Interestingly, he has since made a fortune, but he did it by going into multifamily real estate investing instead of these gas stations. He does it only in the Chicago metropolitan area. And it's turned out to be very, very good business for him. And he's home seven days a week. Wow. I, I love that story for so many reasons. First of all, it speaks to me about the values. The second of all is you didn't give him the answer. You didn't say, are you crazy? You're going to be gone all this time. What you gave him the tools. You gave him the core values. You gave him time to process it. And he ended up being successful while being true to his core values. And so, you know, I mentioned in the book, I kind of have two questions. Whenever you have to make a life decision, um, do you have the time for it? And is it within your core values? And if those answers are yes, I usually say go for it. But if you're hesitating, you think about it because I, as John, you know, I've been a yes person my whole life. And I finally realized that saying yes to something now may be saying no to something later. And as you mentioned, we're getting a little older, but my core value is health and taking care of myself. And, you know, I did reduce some of the boards I'm on and, and a lot of it goes to the core value. So thanks for uh, bringing that up. And, and as we go into core values, John, you're one of those people that I know maximizes his return on life. So can you just tell our listeners besides coaching, how do you maximize your return on life? So one of the things that I really try to think a lot about is what is it that I care about? What's important to me? And I try to invest in that. And so one of the things that I actually know about myself is I like to learn. And I like to learn things that I can apply in my business. I also like to learn just for the sake of learning. And so I have discovered that I don't have the time anymore. It's ironic. Now I have money, but not as much time to devote to formal education. So I can't go back to school as often as I would like to, but I can learn a lot. And so I spend a lot of time and money learning, taking courses, taking programs remotely that allow me to learn new things. Some of these things are tools that I can use in my business and some aren't. So for example, early in the pandemic, I decided to get certified as a global team coach. 
it was a really rigorous program, lots and lots of work. It ran over nine months. Now, as a coach who works a lot with lawyers, that has no relevance in my world. Lawyers don't work with teams. They pretend they do. They call what they do teamwork, but it's not. It's just groups of people who happen to be pursuing a similar objective, but there's no interdependencies or other things that would be consistent with team. So that nine months of really hard work, at least for the moment, has no role in my business. But it was a really interesting thing. It relates to coaching. It's a type of coaching. And I really just wanted to learn. It was a great opportunity. So I spent a lot of money and a lot of time and did that. And so that's, I'd say, number one that I do to maximize my return on life is I know that constantly learning keeps me interested. And if I'm interested, I tend to be more interesting. And so that's important to me. And John, let me just say one thing. And I think for our young listeners, I think continuing to learn is so important. Whatever your career is, don't just be stagnant. Just keep learning because it'll help you move forward. That's a great segue, Sherry, because one of the things that I teach in some leadership programs that I actually teach in is that it's like the infinite loop symbol that you're always on this leadership journey. There is no destination when you're on a leadership journey. If you aspire to be a leader, you will never get to the end point. It's constant learning. And what's exciting about it is when you get to the point where you know what you don't know, that's when you become a beginner again. Because now I know what I don't know. Oh, that might be important. I'm going to go learn about that. Like I'm doing that with neuroscience right now. Boom, I'm a beginner when it comes to neuroscience. And so I am back at the beginning learning curve in terms of learning to be a leader. So that's why that education piece is so important to me. It's consistent with my philosophy on on leadership and it makes my life work really well. And then the other thing I would say to you, Sherry, in terms of my own personal efforts and not trying to maximize my return on life is to the extent I can, and I'm human, so I'm not 100% with this, but to the extent I can, I try to ignore what other people tell me, like what they think I should be doing, what they think is the right thing for me. And, you know, just really explore what I'm thinking. And sometimes it's explore what I'm hearing from others, but not just go and just rotely do it. And like you, I try to then push every opportunity through. I call it just like you would have in your business, a stock screen. I use those core Mm -hmm. values as the stock screen. And if something can't get through the screen, that means it's inconsistent with my core values. So I'm not going to spend the time and and money on it. And if it does get through, to your point, I may not have time for it because it might mean I have to say no to something else I want to do, but at least I know what's consistent with my values. And so trying to live as much of my life as I possibly can, and I am far from perfect. So as you know, it doesn't mean I do that all the time, Pretty close, but I try really hard. And that is a way to maximize your return on life, because I really feel like when you're doing that, almost everything you're doing is now consistent with what you believe. And when you behave consistent with with your belief system, in coaching, we call that being in integrity. So it's not like most people think of integrity as you don't steal. In coaching, integrity is your behaviors align with your beliefs. And when that happens, what you find is you have a lot of peace and clarity in your mind, and it's much easier to pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue. And that's really the key. And and that's why I wrote the book and the podcast, because, you know, I think people just don't take the time to articulate their core values. They're running around, they're trying to figure out their next vacation, they're planning, you know, the next dinner reservation, they might spend more time on open table looking for dinner reservation than ever figuring out their core values. And it's such the key. Once you know your core values, you can make decisions about your money, about your time, about your career, about opportunities, like the example you had. And the other thing is core values change. 
So I'm encouraging my listeners, you know, COVID was a big change. And I think a lot of people came out of COVID changing what was important to them. So I constantly encourage everyone to look at their core values and use it as a guide. So people always ask me, why Purple Coach? Where did you come up with that name? So it's a little bit of a story. And this one, I'm not sure I can tell super fast, but I will try. So Sherry, as you know, I'm the child of um, of multiracial family. My father is black, my mother is white. And I grew up in a military family. And as a result of that, everything in the military has a label. And the labels are not necessarily pejoratives the way we, other parts of society think they are. So as an example, my brother and I were officers' kids because my dad was an officer. We're also black kids because if you have you know, a drop of, of African-American blood in you, you're considered black in, in the, in, at least inside the government. So what was interesting for me and my brother is, is we'd go visit my fraternal grandmother's house in Boston and the black kids that we would play with in the neighborhood there would call us either white kids or Oreos, which is black on the outside, white on the inside. It was very confusing for my brother and me, especially me, because here are people that we thought were black people and that's how we were labeled and they were dissing us and that was very confusing. So jump forward a few years, I'm in my adolescence, we're living in England and my father's the base commander. So as a teenager at that time, I'm desperately trying to establish a separate identity from my parents. And I'm hanging out with my friends after school and their fathers would come home from work. And in those days, it was just the fathers. And they would come home from work on the military base and see me and say things to me like, oh, John, your dad, Colonel Mitchell, he's a great leader. He's got such a great character and it's character that counts. We don't care that he's black. He could be black, white, red, yellow, green, or purple. It's the character that counts. And I quickly figured out when they were telling me this, that color mattered a lot to them. And that was part of the reason they were telling me that story. But I also seized on this idea that sometimes they would say things like black, white, red, yellow. We think there are people of all those colors, right? But then they'd say things like green or purple. We don't think there's green people or purple people. So that was fascinating as a teenager trying to come up with my own identity because then it was like, okay, I can pick a color. No one knows what it means. I get to define what that is. So now fast forward from that point, purple has become my thing. I went to Northwestern University three different times because the school colors are purple. I didn't get purple from Northwestern. I went to Northwestern because purple was such an important symbol to me. So as I started coach training program 20 years later, I came late to one of my classes. They were virtual, so I was on the phone. And I heard this wild debate going on between two of the students. And one of them was saying like, oh, you know, Professor so-and-so made this really great point last week. And da 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 And the person said, no, 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 that's totally wrong. The purple coach had the right idea. I'm like, what? I didn't know what they were talking about. Turned out they were talking about <laughs> me. And the reason they were talking about me is the email address that I picked when I had to become um, part of this program was I took purple, that important symbol. And I said, I'm going to become a coach and just put them together. And I had purple coach, you know, at my um, internet provider. And as a result, people started calling me the purple coach. And Sherry, you may recall, you and I did a public speaking program together many years ago. And Eric from that program to this day just calls me purple. Purple. That's so funny. You know, I just thought it was Northwestern. I am so glad I asked this question because I never knew the whole background. That is so interesting. That is where John. it comes from. And the nice thing about it is, is that every time somebody like you asks me that question, after I get a moment to, to walk away from the conversation, I'll spend a little time thinking about who am I being? Am I being who I want to be? Or am I being who I think people expect me to be? Yeah. And sometimes I find out I'm being the latter. And so then I can make some changes. I'm so glad I asked you because I just thought it was the purple from Northwestern. I guess it made looking for colleges pretty easy because if you just wanted a purple college, you know, 
I looked at a few more than that, but it made making the final choice really easy. Very easy. Yeah. For Stephen, it was uh, coming in spring. My husband went to Northwestern with John Fraternity Brothers. Coming in spring, beautiful day with the Frisbees. So everyone has their reasons. So, you know, I, I just thought of another question, John, because I have a lot of executive clients, a lot of lawyer clients that are, you know, in their mid fifties and they're thinking maybe they want to do something different. And what would you advise someone who's thinking about possibly being an executive coach? What kind of skills and, and what would you give advice on that? So it's interesting because increasingly people are looking at becoming an executive coach. They're in my client base. I have a coach who works with me right now who was a HR executive and she actually decided she wanted to become a coach and she did and she graduated and I fired her as a client so I could hire her as a coach. And so she now works as part of my team and has her own separate business as well. So I think for people who are thinking about becoming a coach, first thing I would say is go to the International Coach Federation website and start reading about what's going on in the industry. And the reason I say that is just it's an easy resource to get to. And then start thinking about what's the reason you want to be a coach. So some people want to be a coach because they don't want to go through the licensing requirements of being a therapist. And that's super dangerous because coaches like therapists are often really good at asking questions. However, therapists are trained how to get you back into a good place when their session is over, the therapy session is over, so you can go on with the rest of your day. Coaches are not trained to put you back together. In fact, we're not trained to take you apart either. But if you get really good at asking questions, sometimes you can do that. Ask yourself, what's the reason that you want to be a coach? And if you like the idea of leading people, it may not be the right place for you because all you may do then is just give advice, which is important. And that's a role for a good consultant. And I do consulting as well. So I'm clear I'm wearing different hats at different times. So do you just want to give advice? be a consultant. If you like the idea of assisting people to achieve their goals and to help them figure out what those goals are and why those goals are important to them. So kind of the big questions coaches help people with a lot is the why and the what. How is a great question. It's also a great one to get a consultant to help you with because most consultants can get you through the how faster than a great coach can. A lot of consultants though won't take the time to ask you the why and the what questions. And so that's really important. And then the other thing I would say is be realistic about your own tolerance for risk. Right now, the coaching profession, even though it's about 30 years old, doesn't have an Arthur Anderson or a big accounting firm, you know, like you had back in the day, Sherry, when you were coming out of college. Mm -hmm. There is no place to go where you can just send out a resume and know you could get hired if you're good enough to work for somebody else as a coach. You pretty much are going to be on your own or in a collaboration with other people. So if being an entrepreneur is terrifying, then it's going to be harder. That said, a number of organizations, especially in the industry that I'm doing a lot of work in, in legal, are increasingly hiring people to come be internal coaches. And a lot of corporations have internal coaches. So you could do that. It's not as common and there's not as many opportunities as there are on the entrepreneurial side of it. So if you want to be a coach and you don't want to be an entrepreneur, I would say do some research right now. What are industries you like working in? Find out what companies in those industries are using coaches and go talk to some of those people. Great. I'm going to give you John's information in just a moment. I'm sure he'd love to talk more if, if anyone is interested, but I do think it's a unbelievable profession where you're helping a lot of people. And I love that you really are using core values as part of your practice. It, it really means a lot to me. And I, I just think it's great. So we are going to end this podcast because I don't get to say this often, 
but you are someone who shares the love of Barry Manilow with me. It's pretty rare. I hope I didn't ruin your reputation on the podcast because you know this will go viral, John. I do love Barry Manilow. And in fact, Sherry, I went and listened to some of my favorite Barry Manilow songs as I was um, preparing for this podcast. Oh, okay. And, and, what, and what I discovered is not all the songs in his top 10 are in my top 10, but I love a lot of his songs and I love seeing him perform in person. He is the ultimate showman. Yeah, I've seen him so many times. I don't know how many more shows he's going to do, but guys, if you don't know it, just give Barry a chance out there. It'll help you out. So John, uh, where can we find you if people want to talk to you further about coaching or if they need a coach? Sure. So my email address is purplecoach at kmadvisors. And the other place to easily find me is on LinkedIn. If you just put John, the Purple Coach Mitchell into LinkedIn, you'll find me there as well. Believe it or not, Sherry, after over 20 years in business, KM Advisors still does not have a website. And I don't have a personal website. And that may change at some point, but right now it, it doesn't. Well, that's a credit to you that you've so much business, even without a website. It is completely word of mouth referrals. Word of mouth. Well, yeah, I mean, I know, John, you have mentored other people to be coaches and you really started this profession over 30 years ago or maybe 25 when, when it was just starting to percolate. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. We will list all the information on how to get in touch with John on the website that we're going to post the podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how we can help you maximize your return on life, you can go to rrcapital.com. That's Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Or if you want to learn more about me, it's sherrygrecorikus.com. And if you like the podcast, which I hope you do, please subscribe uh, so you'll get future podcasts. So John, thanks so much. This I learned a lot. I thought I knew everything about you. So it was fun to uh, do the podcast. And thanks again for being a guest. Thank you so much, Sherry. I really appreciate the opportunity and I enjoyed listening to your podcast and I will look forward to um, being a subscriber and hearing more of them. Great. Thanks.